Well, thank you once again for the opportunity to uh, uh, share with you from God's Word. Uh, earlier this morning, we were thinking about uh, some lessons from the book of Nehemiah. And uh, I shared with you how God spoke to us from that book, how, how he spoke to our family. And, you know, as I look at the book of Nehemiah, there are a number of bigger lessons that I take away from that book that I think apply to all believers. And I'm just going to sum some of them up for you. And then we're going to look at the life of the Apostle Paul as he put some of these principles into practice in his life in Acts chapter 16 and 17. But Paul was very familiar with uh, the scriptures and so now no doubt was well versed with God's dealing with his servant Nehemiah. And as we look at, at what's recorded in Nehemiah's book, how God called him from Susa to go to Jerusalem, he put that vision in his heart, he went on a perilous journey across hundreds of miles to do something that most people would have considered quite foolish. I'm sure as the Apostle Paul, with his newfound faith in Christ, was thinking about these things, it was making an impression on him. And I don't know if he took these same lessons that I took from the book of Nehemiah, but I'm sure some of them echoed in his heart. Some things that I've learned as I've studied God's record of his transactions with Nehemiah is that my story and each of our stories is part of a much larger story. It wasn't simply about Nehemiah and his own goals and talents and his position within Susa. He recognized that God was at work and he wanted him to play a part in this larger story. He also recognized that God makes divine appointments. It wasn't simply a coincidence that he happened to be the cupbearer of the king. It wasn't simply a coincidence that the, the brethren came with this report from Jerusalem. God arranges divine appointments. Nehemiah learned and recorded in his book that the joy of the Lord was his strength. He also learned to pray. He learned that his comfort, security, and safety were not paramount. He learned that obedience to God's call was paramount. Paul later on would say, a soldier should seek to please his commanding officer. Nehemiah understood that. And so rather than simply say, I'm going to stay here in Susa and I hope that everything goes well for you in Jerusalem and give me regular updates, he approached the king and said, can I go there? Can I help those people? They're my people. This is the God that I serve. Nehemiah understood that engaging in an endeavor bigger than himself could bring much reward. But also that most worthwhile endeavors involve a certain degree of risk. He was not naive to the fact that as he went and started to conduct uh, changes within that place that there were enemies who would oppose him. But he recognized 
that the joy of the Lord was his strength. And he was able to encourage those he was ministering to with those truths. He also recognized that we accomplish far more together than we can individually. And so when he went to Jerusalem, he brought the people together and he unified them in the task of building that wall. He recognized the importance of persevering in the face of discouragement and opposition. It wasn't easy. He had to have the people keep a trowel as well as a sword because his enemies came right out and said, we're going to come and attack you. And he recognized that prayer changes the world and ourselves. And so he prayed to the God of heaven, but he also persevered in the task that was given. He recognized that careful planning accompanies bold steps of faith. On the one hand, he was willing to go out and do what the Lord had put on his heart. On the other hand, he planned things carefully. He understood that attention to the word of God results in conviction, repentance, and revival. And he also understood that a record of one's transactions with the Lord can be a blessing to others. Nehemiah, after he had seen how God powerfully worked, recorded these things so that someone like Paul could read about it later on and people like us can read about it many years later. And that we can learn from looking at these case studies and testimonies. So in my imagination, I'm thinking about Paul as he reflects on some of these truths that he could have gleaned from seeing God's interaction with Nehemiah. And now, Paul, the Lord has spoken to Paul. He's been on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. They've seen a lot of amazing things. They are ready to go on a second journey to go back and revisit the places that they went to initially. But a disagreement occurs and Barnabas goes in one direction towards Cyprus and Paul goes to another direction towards the churches in Asia. And as he's going about his work, the spirit of Jesus stops him from going to one particular location. And instead, he receives a call to go to Macedonia. And so... With Silas, they set on sail and they come to the peninsula of what we now know as Greece in Macedonia. And I'm sure he was eager with anticipation. What is God going to do? What does God have in store for me? See, Paul recognized that his life was also a journey. And he was keen to hear his master's voice. We have a a hymn that we sing, All the way my Savior leads me. That was the way Paul lived his life along with those he served with. And so, with great anticipation, we see in Acts chapter 16, that uh, verse 10 After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so they're going to Macedonia. They've concluded that they're going to be the ambassadors 
to this place that God has called Paul to go to. So they put out to sea, and they landed. Uh, they sailed for Samothrace, and then they went to Neapolis, and then they got to Philippi, this leading city. And they had the chance to minister in Philippi, and then later in Thessalonica, and in Berea, and subsequently in Athens. Four separate locations. And in each location, you can see a different dynamic at place as Paul shared from the word of God. Start off with Philippi. Initially, there were some believers that received the word of God. They were uh, outside the city gate at the river praying and uh, they received God's word. But soon after that, Satan started to oppose. How did he oppose? Well, a slave girl started coming after them who was able by a spirit to predict the future. And she was disrupting their meeting. She kept saying, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now you'd think, well, how can that be a problem? Well, if Paul is actually trying to tell them the way of God, and in the midst of that, there's a constant interruption by somebody saying, these men are servants of the Most High God, he can't actually explain the plan of salvation because this disturbance is going on. And so it says in verse uh, 17, this girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. So this wasn't an isolated kind of event in a meeting. Pretty much whenever they were having a meeting, this girl would show up and she would say this. So much so that finally Paul became so troubled, he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. You see, there was a spiritual battle occurring. Paul recognized that it was not simply a matter of this girl opposing him there was an evil spirit and there was a spiritual battle going on and the one who is the enemy of our souls did not want the gospel to be planted the church the an initial group of believers to be established in their faith there in philippi and so he sent this disruption and so paul through the power of the holy spirit was able to address that but then what happens there's a financial arrangement that's been disrupted this girl was making a lot of money for her masters by divination they're upset about that because all of a sudden their income stream is dried up and so paul and silas are beaten without a trial and are put in prison and to all intents and purposes you'd think that the the work of the lord was stopped but what happened God shows himself powerful there. And as a result, Paul and Silas are praising God in the prison. Then the jailer is worried because an earthquake comes and everybody's stocks are released. He's about to commit suicide. But Paul says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And he asks that beautiful question that each of us needs to ask in our life. What must I do to be saved? And in verse 31, Paul replies, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. 
Whoever puts their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. The simplicity of the gospel. So simple that Paul could utter it. And this man in the jail could accept it. And his household, as they understood, could accept it. Was enough to translate them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And he did that. And he washed their wounds. And he had them over to his house, set a, a meal before them. And then the magistrates say, you know, release these men. But Paul says, wait a second, we're Roman citizens. Uh, if you want us to be released, you need to come yourselves and, and escort us out. And so they're escorted out. And they go from Philippi to Thessalonica. So the first seeds are planted. And we learn later on of, of how God worked in the church in Philippi because we have Paul's letter to the Philippians. Such an encouraging letter. A letter where he teaches them about the joy of the Lord. I'm sure as he reflected on Nehemiah's understanding that the joy of the Lord is your strength, that was in his mind as he penned the words in Philippians to give those people joy in the midst of their challenges. But then he goes to Thessalonica. And what happens in Thessalonica? Verse seven, chapter 17 of Acts, verse 2. As was his custom, Paul went to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Now I can just imagine. There it's the Apostle Paul, a gifted, eloquent, persuasive individual. And he's presenting the gospel to them. As a result, verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But then what happens? But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They went to Jason's house, and they said, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And in other translations it says, They've turned the world upside down. And what happened? Paul had to leave Thessalonica. So here... Three weeks, he had the opportunity to sow some seeds of truth. And then these people came and opposed him, and off they go. And again, it sounds very discouraging. But that seed of the word of God took root in a few people's lives, because later on, we have Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. And we see Paul encouraging them in their faith and and as Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers, he tells them how he was like a mother with tenderness and kindness towards them. He was like a father to them. He worked with his hands so that he wouldn't be a burden to them. And then he goes on to explain what they can expect in the future. But if all we had was this passage in, in Acts 17, you'd think, okay, so he's failed in Philippi. Now he's failed in Thessalonica. He gets to Berea. Verse 10 of chapter 17. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now catch this, verse 11. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, 
For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. What happens next? Verse 13. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and left without, with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Again, on the surface of it, a little bit of a reception, but failure number three. Struck out in Philippi. Oh, there's a few believers. Struck out in Thessalonica. Oh, there's a few believers. Struck out in Berea. Those people at least listened to the word. They were of more noble character. Now he goes to Athens. So this Macedonian man who said, come over and help us. I'm sure Paul was thinking, you people need help, but boy, it's hard to help you. So he gets to Athens. And we're familiar with the passage. Verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as, those, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Wherever Paul went, his theme was the Lord Jesus Christ and how God raised him from the dead. He could not get over the power of the resurrection and the difference that that made. But each of these places had a different response. And so there in Athens, you have a group of people who loved to spend their time doing no, but nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They were philosophers. And some of the philosophers were Epicurean, who believed that no pleasure should be denied to the body. And some were Stoics, who believed that the, the body should be trained with strict discipline. But in any event, they wanted to come and hear Paul, not so that they could respond to what he was saying, so much as they could hear another set of interesting ideas. And so again, as Paul reflects on what's going on here, I can just imagine him feeling frustration. These are the words of eternal life. And yet as, as you go to the end of chapter 17, it says, verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were, was Dionysius, Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a, a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So here you have Paul's initial foray into Europe. And it doesn't look very promising. What does he have as a result of his efforts? A handful of believers in various places, a fresh set of stripes on his back, a prison term, and people who 
wanted to debate philosophies. Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Philippi. Not a very propitious start. But I'm sure as Paul thought about these things, he also kept in mind the words of Christ. Because Luke records in chapter 8 of his gospel, the parable of the sower and the the seed. And we're all familiar with it. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. In verse 4, it says, While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it, and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop, a hundred times more than was sown. Then he said this, when he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. And then he went on to explain the meaning of this parable. Verse 11 of of Luke chapter 8. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it but have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stand for those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Here's that same description. In Luke chapter 17, Luke says of the Bereans, the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians. And in Luke chapter 8, he says, the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart. What is it that characterizes that noble and good heart? They hear the word, they retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Our life is like a journey. On this journey, many of us never stop to ask the question, where are we headed? When we put our faith in Christ, it changes everything, including our direction. As believers, our goal should be to please our Lord and Master. Along life's journey, the Lord offers to provide guidance. I mentioned earlier, we sing that song, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. Our Savior is willing to guide us. But many believers travel through life without seeking guidance from the Lord. It's like a traveler who's got a GPS, but it's not turned on. Who's got a map, but it's not opened up. Who's got a compass, but it's never consulted. And those kind of travelers, when they arrive at their destination, 
frequently will not be where they want to be. When we read of the response of the people in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, in each case, there are different responses. And you could characterize those places by their responses. In Philippi, it was like the seed sown on soil where soon after it was sown, those birds came and snatched that seed. Right as soon as Paul started to share from the word of God, there's disruption. Soon after that, he's put in prison. He's not able to spend much time there because Satan had a stronghold in that place and did not want the seed of the word of God to be planted. But there were some in that place who did respond, who allowed that seed of the word of God to soak deeply into their heart among whom were the jailer. Here's a man who previously had imprisoned these ambassadors for Christ, and now he says, come to my house. And God left that individual there. Now, in Luke chapter 17, the apostle Paul had gone on to Thessalonica, but Luke probably stayed on because we don't see him referring to we anymore. He's saying they. So Luke probably had a chance to see what was going on in Philippi after that incident. Then we get to Thessalonica. Some were persuaded again, but the Jews were jealous and formed a mob. What do we see happening here? It's like seed on that second soil. There were some people that responded, but soon after persecution comes. And in the face of persecution the people who maybe were on the fence about, let let me pay attention to this, they decide, this is too hazardous. I I don't want to really be involved with, with this kind of thing. I prefer to be comfortable. And so the word of God has no further effect in their lives. Then we come to Berea. And in Berea, they had a more noble character. They received the word with eagerness, but they didn't simply receive it. They went to the scriptures and examined them each day to see if what Paul was saying was true. There are many people that can receive God's word, but if it's not what's actually taught in the scripture, they're not critical of that. And that, that's not enough. We need to receive it, and then we need to examine God's word. And then there was Athens city full of idols, city full of distractions, city full of uh, various things that uh, were the latest ideas, and an attitude that sneered at the resurrection. Many of the hearts there were like those choked by the thorns. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of, of wealth, come along, and choke out the word. Now, as I said, in each of these locations, by God's grace, there was not solely one response. In each of those locations, there were those of a good and noble heart who heard God's word and were willing to internalize it. But let's move from Greece back then to now. How are we when it comes to receiving the word of God? 
what is our response? Do we allow the devil to snatch the word away from us? Do we receive the word with joy but have no root? And when trials come, our faith quickly crumbles? Do we hear but are choked but life's, by life's worries, riches, and pleasures? Or does it, the seed fall on good soil where the believers, like the believers of old, were able to hear, retain, persevere, and produce a good crop, as it says in Luke chapter 8. <clears throat> you know, I was thinking about this, and I thought, many times I can be in that third category. I hear the word, but then various things come and choke it. We live in a complicated world. There's lots of things on our plate, too many communications and junk mail and urgent items and data and papers to sort and people to meet and photos to sort and computer files to arrange and details and debt and commitments and toys and gadgets and stuff and clothes and all of these things conspire and they're just like those little thorns that come around slowly but surely come and choke out the word of God so that there's not time in the morning to consult this book. There's not time at noon to pray. There's not time in the evening. There's time for all these other things to watch the news and hear about all that's going on. There's time to check all of these things that we have to stay up to date with. But there's not time to actually spend meditating on the God of eternity and his instruction for us. And when I find myself in that situation, I have to ask myself, what has my Savior taught me? How can, I, how can I reframe things so that I'm hearing and responding to his word? Consider Christ's instruction about worry. Matthew six twenty five to 34. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or your body, what you will wear. Consider the birds. They don't sow or reap or store away, and yet the Father feeds them. Consider the lilies. They do not labor or spin, yet they're clothed with beauty. The pagans spend their time and energy worrying about what they will eat and drink and what they will wear. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The Lord knows all of those challenges. But just as that hymn that we sung, sung just a few minutes ago, Jesus calls us over the tumult, saying, Christian, love me more. Now, Jesus never calls in, a, in a, 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 a voice that drowns out everything else. We have to be willing to listen. We have to have a mind and a, and a set of ears, a heart that's willing to receive that message. As we think about the world we live in and all the, the, the conveniences that we have, there's a proliferation of meaningless information. There's a proliferation of worries and covetousness that these things that we feel we need allow. A thoughtful, spirit-led individual will cut through all the details to focus on essential items. They'll dispose of the unnecessary and un unessential things rapidly. They will store the essential in a well-prepared area of their home and their mind so that they can bring it out and rehearse it when they have need. They will communicate regularly with God, with family, with friends about those things that are important. And they'll establish habits to ensure that essential commitments are met. You know, when you look at the life of someone like Paul, I'm sure to the external 
observer, his life seemed pretty boring. It was probably similar to the life of Daniel. Gets up in the morning, spends time with the Lord. Prays, spends some more time with the Lord at at, uh, each of the times that's set out within his days. Has a certain rhythm and a certain order. And you might look at that and think, well, you know, that's, that's very boring. But that was the secret to their success. They had a rhythm to their life that was not set by the outside, by the pagans, by what was going on around them. They were in tune and in sync with the Spirit of God. That's what we need as well. You know, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the Berean response to hear, retain, persevere, and produce a crop. And it came to, as I was meditating on this, it, it struck me that there are five elements that can help us to hear, retain, and persevere. And together they form the first letters of the word ready, R-E-A-D-Y. The first is receive. The second is examine. The third is ask. The fourth is discuss. And the fifth is yield. Receive, examine, ask, discuss, and yield. And as I was thinking about this, my mind, it came to mind years ago when I was a flight instructor. One of the privileges that I had uh, was to teach people how to fly in the clouds. And when you're going to fly without reference to the horizon or structures on earth, you are trusting your instruments. And you're also trusting an air traffic controller on the ground because you're not the only one who's flying. There's all kinds of people who are in that weather flying that can't see one another, some of whom are going three, four, five hundred miles an hour. And so when you prepare to get into this environment, you're issued something called a clearance. And it would go something like this. You call up the ground controller and you say, uh, clearance, uh, this is Skyhawk 6396 Kilo. I'm ready to receive my IFR clearance to Cincinnati. And at that point, you would hear something like this come back. Cessna 6396 Kilo, you're cleared to Cincinnati. Lunkin Airport has filed. Fly runway heading. Join Victor 74 to direct Salem. Victor 78 to Mansfield, then is filed. Climb and maintain 4,000. Expect 8,000. 15 minutes after departure. Departure frequency will be 118.4. Squawk 4477. And the first time an instrument student hears this, they're overwhelmed. What did he say? Was that for us? And they may not even have a pencil with them. And so before we ever get into the system, we practice receiving clearances. And I say, look, here's what they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you where you're cleared to. Then you need to study the map beforehand so that you know these different points that they're clearing you to. Then they're going to tell you the route that they want you to. You may have filed one route, but there may be some problems with that route, and they may have you going a different way. Then they're going to tell you your altitude. Then they're going to tell you how they can contact you. And then they're going to tell you the discrete number that you need to put into your airplane so that they can keep track of you the whole time. As we think about receiving instruction from the Lord, many times we are like that first instrument student. We're not even ready. 
And if we don't have a frame of mind to receive God's instruction, when it comes, it goes right over our head. So as I work with those students, I talk to them about receiving, examining, asking, discussing, and yielding. I say, first of all, am I prepared to receive the instructions? Have I studied the route before? Have I studied the weather? Do, am I familiar with the local environment? Am I listening? Am I tuned into the right frequency? From time to time, you'll tune in and you call a clearance and it's so, somewhere else because you weren't paying attention. Am I ready to copy? Am I thinking with a frame of mind with my pencil in hand expecting that clearance? And am I paying attention to what the controller will say? But that's not enough simply to receive. I then need to examine. Do I understand the instructions? Do the instructions make sense? Will these instructions get me to my destination? Sometimes a clearance can be given, and you're given a, a clearance to a certain point, but you don't know what you're going to do after that point. That's not sufficient. In that situation, you need to ask. You need to read back the clearance so that the controller understands, but you need to ask about anything that's not clear. And then if there's two of you flying, you discuss it with your co-pilot. And you then prepare the aircraft to fly according to that clearance. Finally, you have to yield. You have to continually fly in such a way as it complies with the instructions you've been given. If you're told to fly at an altitude and you're 500 feet below that altitude, you'll get a call pretty quick from ATC because they're relying on you to stay where you're supposed to stay so that they can guarantee clearance from other airplanes who are in the same environment. So you have to constantly correct your heading, your altitude, and check your waypoints along the way to make sure that you are in the place that you're supposed to be. It's the same way with God's word. Are you prepared to receive the word of God? Preparation on for receiving God's word on Sunday starts Saturday night in many cases. Because if you come and you're in a frame of mind where you're exhausted and you've got other things that are going on in your mind, you won't hear what the Bible has to tell you. It begins by confessing your sins, asking for forgiveness, having a regular day of rest, trusting that God will take whatever cares and worries are on your plate and will do what is necessary so that you can seek first his kingdom. I can't listen well if I'm tired, distracted, or worried about something. So I have to receive God's word. But once I've received it, I need to examine it. How does this teaching align with other scriptures? Does the passage state what was taught? What, can I, what principles are there? Scripture doesn't uh, contradict itself. And many times in a message or at the morning time of remembrance, you don't have the time to go into all of those things. But that's such a blessing because that gives you some food to meditate on throughout the week. And we can ask questions. Who was the passage originally written for? What did it mean then? When did this writer live? Why were the events recorded? Recorded, And then asking ourselves, okay, so that's what it meant to Nehemiah, or that's what it meant to Paul, but what does this mean today? What truths are there that are relevant to me now, and why is this important? And as we start to ask questions we have the joy of fellowship with other believers. We can discuss so that we can understand and bless one another. Discuss with other believers to develop further insights so that we can prepare to live according to those instructions. And we have one another to hold accountable. 
so that as God puts something on my heart, if I have a brother or sister in Christ and I share that with them, they come and check up on me and say, you know what? You said that you wanted to do this or we've been praying for this. How's that going? And vice versa. We're not in this alone. We have somebody that's working with us. And one of the the things for instrument students to understand, it's like a watershed moment in their mind. A light bulb turns on when they understand air traffic control is actually their best friend. They're the ones that are going to see them safely through to the destination. And in the same way, God's instruction in the word of God and our fellowship with believers, they are our resources so that each of us can follow God's instruction to get us to our destination. And where are we headed? We are headed the same place the Apostle Paul was headed. His goal was the high calling of God. He wanted to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the goal of every believer. The problem is on the way, there's obstacles. On the way, there's turbulence. On the way, there's challenges. And we need to steer clear of that. And we have one another to encourage, exhort, build up, equip. Aren't you glad that we're not solo operators? We need each other. And that's the role of the body of Christ. We're not here to solely go and accomplish everything. But like Nehemiah, we recognize we can accomplish so much more together than we could ever dream of on our own. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, we come to the issue of yielding. Because it makes no difference if you've received and understood very clearly and have pictured in your mind what you're supposed to do. If you don't do it, there's a problem. We have to act in a way that complies with the instructions we've received. Every day we need to continually go back and check to to see that we are headed in the direction that the Lord wants us to be in. That we have the right attitude. Paul says in the book of Philippians, let this attitude be in you that was in Christ. And he goes on to talk about how Christ emptied himself of all of his you know, privileges to come and take the form of a servant for our sakes. We need to have the same attitude. And then you need to check progress towards your goals. If you've made a goal to go in a particular place, you won't know if you are growing towards that success in that goal if you don't check from time to time. And believers in the process of sanctification also should have those types of goals. Waypoints where they can say, Yes, I asked the Lord for this and he, he delivered and he's worked on these aspects of my character and I'm seeing him at work in this way. That's one of the reasons why we report regularly from the mission field because those are ways that we can also objectively say, you know, am I headed in the wrong direction? It's certainly possible and we need the feedback of other mature believers to say, yes, persevere. You know, when Paul went through Those four locations, I'm sure initially he just thought, what was that all about? I get this vision to come and help in Macedonia, and there is just nothing there. But he wasn't ministering alone. He had Silas. He had Timothy. He had Luke. They got together. They prayed. They continued to pray. Even after they left and went elsewhere, they continued to stay in touch and corresponding. And the the beautiful thing is the Spirit of God was at work. 
And the Spirit of God takes the Word of God when it's implanted in good soil and it causes it to multiply in a way that we cannot understand where one seed can result in a hundred new plants. That's the power of the Spirit of God. But in order to be unleashed, we have to yield to His leading. We have to take steps of faith. So that's my question for you all today. Are you ready to follow the Lord Jesus Christ where he calls you? Are you ready to receive his word? Are you ready to examine those instructions, examine scripture? Are you ready to ask difficult questions so that you can have a clear sense of what he's leading you to do? Do you have other brothers and sisters in Christ that you can discuss what God has been showing you with, with them and that you would hold one another accountable? And are you willing to yield so that he can achieve his purposes? You know, when we look at Nehemiah, it's incredible. God built that wall so rapidly. When we look at the book of Acts, it's incredible. God took those fledgling efforts and he built his church. And we're reading epistles that were written to those believers thousands of years later and still being blessed. Why is that? Because the Spirit of God has the power to do what we cannot do. And God's Word had power back in Nehemiah's time, power in Paul's time, and power in our time. So when I encourage you all to pray for what God is doing in Cincinnati and in Kalamazoo and in Nepal, it's because we are praying to the same God who uses the same power of the resurrection to achieve his purposes that I have confidence to know that he will deliver. But don't be like the distracted individual who allows all the chatter on the frequency to get in the way so that you're not there to receive Christ's clear instruction. He, our Savior wants to lead each one of us and he leads us through his word, through his people, through regular fellowship, through the Lord's Supper. These aren't simply uh, traditions that we follow. This isn't just a, a ritual. It can be if we let it be. But these are actually the tools that we need so that we can stay out of trouble, stay on course, and reach our destination. May God help us as we do that. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you call us to follow you. Like you called Andrew so many years ago, you call each of us over the tumult to love you more, to serve you more, to follow you. And Lord, I confess many times as you call in my own life, I'm distracted. I'm not focused on the, your call. And my response can be like the soils where I allow Satan to snatch away a word you have for me or I allow the seed not to really take root, or I allow thorns to come up and, and to extinguish the power that you have in your word so that I don't pay attention to it. Lord, I pray that you would just allow each of us to take your word seriously, and I pray that you would use your word in our lives to do amazing things for your glory. Spirit of God, I thank you so much for what you have done, for what you did through Nehemiah, for what you do through, did through Paul, and for what you're doing through each of your children who are called to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I pray that you'd help us to be alert and attentive and eager to comply with your instructions so that we can reach the destination you have for us. I pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.